0: How's it going, 11 o'clock? Yeah, it's good to see you guys. Thanks for setting your clocks up an hour and uh, making it here today. And you guys got the extra hour of sleep, so I can tell you're a little bit more rested than nine o'clock, not so much, okay? So uh, thank you guys for being here and being rested and worshiping our Lord. My name is Mike Lee. I'm the Life Group's pastor here. Pastor Corey's actually over at the Cannon, uh, excuse me, the College Grove campus this morning. Yeah, it's the first time he's been able to be there since we launched that campus, so I'm excited that he's getting to do that, and I know it's a real encouragement to Dave and that group. But I'm glad you guys are here today. Just a little bit about myself. My name is Mike. As I said, I'm from Memphis. My wife and I are both. Uh, this coming May, 37 years of marriage. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens when you get married at six years of age, okay? So uh, that's just an important thing to know. But yeah, we have three adult children. Both, All three of them are married. I have three grandkids, and uh, we've lived in the borough since 2002. We love this place, and we love this church. We've been coming here since uh, the summer of 2017, and then I came on the team back in October. And so... I'm just so grateful to be here with you guys and be sharing God's Word and thankful for Pastor Corey giving me this opportunity to share with you guys. And we're going to continue in Matthew. And so what happened was last week, Pastor Corey started what is called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He looked at the verses 1 through 20 in Matthew chapter 5. And he started with this group of things called the Beatitudes. And then he went into this idea of who is Jesus as far as Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament and to the law. Because what some have called the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom's manifesto. Jesus Christ came announcing the kingdom had come. And he was the king over this kingdom. And he was calling citizens into the kingdom. Well, how are these citizens supposed to live as a part of this kingdom? How are we supposed to look? How do we interact with people? What is it that we're supposed to be about? And so as Jesus preaches this kingdom manifesto, he is preaching to a group of people saying, this is what it's gonna be like to be a part of the kingdom. And so one of the things that we talked about last week that Pastor Corey did an amazing job of sharing with us is that none of us are good enough and that we're all gonna fail. I know that sounds like a downer Well, trust me, this sermon's gonna be even more down, okay? So just get ready, all right? We'll end on a hopeful place, but this is gonna be a very serious sermon that we're gonna be thinking about today because what had happened is that Jesus says in verse 20 of chapter five, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet for the people that were in that time, the most righteous people they knew were the scribes and the Pharisees. They were outwardly very, very religious and did all the right rules. They kept them perfectly. And so Jesus is saying, you've got to surpass that righteousness. Well, the listeners are going, if we've got to be more righteous than the Pharisees, there's no hope. Well, then on the book end of this chapter, so that's verse 20, verse 48 is going to say, what is the righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees? You've got to be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. Oh my goodness, you say say you gotta be better than the scribes and Pharisees, and the, the matter that you gotta attain to, the standard, is God. Yeah. So what were the purposes then of the Ten Commandments? Well, as we talked about last week, Pastor Corey said, these Ten Commandments, they define sin so that we can see that in our lives, so that we can then get right with God. In other words, we can confess those things and trust in the forgiveness that we receive in Jesus Christ. So now what we're going to be thinking about is our hearts and thinking about this idea that the condition of our hearts is best seen in our relationships with others. In other words, how do we know that we are living up to God's perfection? Well, the best way for that to be seen is how do we relate to one another? How do we interact with those who are created in the image of God? We are told in the great command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself, Well, how am I doing in loving my neighbor as myself? That's the kind of things we're gonna be thinking about today. So you're gonna be thinking, what is the condition of my heart and how do I see that being lived out in how I relate to people? What Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna give us six antitheses. He's gonna say, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So he's gonna give us a standard that the Pharisees looked at and went, hey, we're in, we're good. But then Jesus is going to say, but I say unto you, and then he's going to get to the heart of those standards, and it's going to chip away at the root of self-righteousness. For some of us, that's what's going to happen to us today. For others of us, we're going to hear those things, and it's going to just weigh us down. We're going to say, is there any hope? And again, I hope by the end that you will find hope in Jesus Christ. So you should have gotten a notes handout when you came in. If you have an app, you can go to the app. You can go to our Sermon site there, our services, and then there's sermon notes there. Uh, everything I say pretty much is going to be up on the screen, and I think we're good to go. Are y'all ready? Underwhelming, but I'm, I'm here. Yeah, I'm still going to preach, so I, yeah, yeah, y'all not going to get me down. No, no. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for your kindness to us and that you allow us to gather here to worship you to make much of the name of Jesus. We're grateful that there are times in our lives when we need to have our sin exposed so that we can find hope and healing in Jesus Christ. We know there are times when we're down that we need to be lifted up and encouraged. There are times when we're hurting and there are wounds that need to be healed and we can find that in this place and in your word. And so Father, we ask that through your Holy Spirit that you will move among us this morning. May my words not be mine, but may they be yours. May your word penetrate and do the work that it can do through the power of your spirit. Father, we know this week has been a very difficult week for our neighbors in the middle Tennessee area. And we pray for those who are burying loved ones, for those whose homes have been destroyed, for those who have lost jobs because businesses have been torn down. We pray that you would bring hope to these people. We pray that they would know of the love of Jesus in their walking through the valley of the shadow of death, even now. I pray for the first responders and for uh, nonprofits that are serving these people, Father. Give them strength and energy. And may out of the rubble come beauty and strength and hope. Father, we are grateful for the churches in our community that are preaching the gospel even right now. May they be blessed as people hear the truth that Jesus came to save sinners. We're grateful for our nonprofits that serve our community so well. We're grateful for the opportunity we have to serve our community through the spring cleaning day that's coming up. We pray, Father, that as we go into our community, may people know that there's a church that doesn't just say we love people, but we demonstrate it. So thank you for that. So now, Lord, we give you this time. This is your service, Father. This is your time. May you move in a very powerful way. And we ask this in the powerful and wonderful name of our Savior, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before we kind of jump into this, what I wanna to talk to you a little bit about is the heart. Now, Pastor Corey talked about the heart, and we hear a lot, you, know, you gotta get your heart right with God. You gotta be, you know, make sure your heart is working the way God wants it to work. Well, what do we mean by the heart when the Bible talks about that? Well, the heart is, the, is it's really who you are. Is the seat of what you think, of what you speak, of what you do, your hearts determine all of that, how we treat one another. And unless we receive a new heart, then we will choose whatever ultimately brings us the greatest joy, because the Bible says that ultimately in Jeremiah 17, 9, our hearts are desperately wicked. Now I know some of you go, oh man, Mike, that is, no. It's all about environment. If you get the right environment, everybody's gonna be okay. Hearts are basically good. Well, have you ever worked in a nursery with children? I mean, have any of you ever had to say to your child, now, son, you're really not being selfish enough. So when you go into the preschool, this is how you take someone's toy away from them. No, we don't have to teach our kids that. Why? Because that's a natural inclination. We all think the universe revolves around us. And that's that part of this heart that needs to be changed. And so how do we change it? How do we get to a new heart? Well, there are world religions and even some wrong understandings of Christianity that say, if I do enough good things, if I really work and do the, tip the balance of the scales in my favor with good works, I can work my way to God and to a new heart. And so it's an outward in practice. I do all the good things and hopefully at some point I will do good deeds that outweigh the bad and I'll be acceptable to God and I'll get a new heart. But ultimately, if you're depending upon works to get you to heaven or to whatever your God is, if that's what you're depending on, I think it can only lead to two things and it can only lead to pride or despair. And what do I mean by that? Well, if we're saying, hey, it's my good deeds that get me to heaven, well, I am going to rest in what I do for God or whatever that God is, and I'm going to look at everyone else to say, hey, I'm better than you. That's what really the scribes and the Pharisees did. They made a list of rules, kept the rules perfectly, so they could look down on everyone else. And that leads to pride because you think you're somebody when you're really not. But for most of us, having to think I have to earn my way to heaven it really leads to despair. And why is that? Because deep down, most of us know we really don't measure up the way we should. We're not as really good as we think we are. And so we despair that God will ever accept someone like us. And so even though we work and we work and we work, it's futile and we we get so weary and we lead ultimately to despair. And so, if we're depending on our works and thinking we're good enough, that's also going to lead to a legalism that says, I'm going to make the rules, I'm going to keep those rules, I'm going to make sure everyone else doesn't measure up. Because then, well, at least when I stand before God, I can say, Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but have you noticed so and so over here? They were terrible. Or it can lead, again, to despair where all we can do is beat our chest and say, I'm a sinner. And there's nothing I can do, which I think then leads to lawlessness, which says, well, what's the point of even trying to be good? I'll never be good enough. I might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. And who cares? Those are the things that happen when we do an outward in religion trying to change our heart. But here's the good news of the gospel and of Christianity. The Bible says that instead of us having to work our way to God, God the Son came to us. God the Son took on human flesh. Jesus Christ came, and he lived a righteous life that we couldn't live. And what do I mean by a righteous life? Jesus Christ kept the commandments of God, both the intent as well as the letter of the law perfectly his whole life. I mean, can you imagine that? Never once having a wrong thought, never once saying a wrong word, and never doing something wrong ever. I mean, most of us have already sinned multiple times before we walked in here, right? And yet here's God in the flesh, God the Son, never once sinning, ever. He did that because he knew we couldn't. And then the Bible says that this Son of God, Jesus, died on the cross for sinners as our substitute. We were the ones that deserved the wrath of God because of our sin. And yet the Bible says that God dumped his wrath, poured out his wrath on Christ while he was on the cross. And that on the cross, Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God for sinners. And then in a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating that on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, victorious over death and hell and sin. And we do not work our way to that. The Bible tells us that if we will believe this by faith, that we receive a new heart. It's what Christ has done for us that saves us, not what we do for him. So Christianity is inward out. When we trust in the finished work of Jesus, then that's how we get a new heart. And so instead of pride, we have humility, instead of despair, we have joy. Because we know that in Jesus we will, he's the reason we'll ever be good enough to be acceptable to God. And so what we find out is that if you want a new heart, you can have it, but it's a gift to be received by grace through faith, and it's not of works. So we have this standard of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus says, we've got to surpass that. So the problem with the scribes and Pharisees wasn't that they weren't good, it's that they weren't good enough. They thought they were righteous in their own deeds and actions, but in reality, they were falling very short of the standard of God. Because again, at the end of this lesson, we'll close with this idea that the only one that we measure must measure ourselves by is God. God Himself. In fact, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and we fall short of God's glory. Not man's glory, not man's conditions, but of God's glory. He is our standard. And so as we go into this lesson again, these six antitheses, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, these are all gonna focus on relationships, on our relationships, and how those relationships Shine a light into our hearts that show us the condition of our hearts. You know, there's a lot of us that will say, oh, man, I, I love Jesus. I've been changed. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you what James tells you. Don't tell me you have faith. Show it to me. And the best way to show it is in your relationships, at your, in your family, at your school, your work, your neighborhoods, even in your church. This is where we show our true love for Christ and a changed heart. So how you interact with people, how you love people, that will either show that, yes, I have a transformed heart, or it's going to show, no, I still have a wicked heart. And so as we go through these six things, here's the thought I would like for you to be thinking. How's my heart? What's the condition of my heart right now? Not what was it like 20 years ago or 20 days ago? Right now, how is my heart? All right, so let's jump in, verse 21 of chapter 5 of Matthew. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. All right, so the scribes and the Pharisees, they're listening to Jesus say, Don't murder. That's the sixth commandment. Don't commit murder. And they're going, Hey, we're good. We have never murdered anyone. Now, Moses in the Old Testament, the one that brought the law from God, he had murdered someone. David, the king, out of whom Jesus' lineage, he was coming. King David had committed murder, but the scribes and Pharisees were going, not us. We're good, until Jesus says, oh, you see, I know the condition of your heart. And he looks beyond their outward righteousness. And so what is murder anyway? Well, for me, the best way I can describe it is murder is a blatant disregard for life. It's basically where I do not look at a person as of any value and their life is of no value and I can just end their life as easy as I can take a next breath. It is a dismissive look at human beings. What Jesus said, if you have anger in your heart, you have committed murder against your brother or your sister. And so I call that a dismissive anger. And a dismissive anger basically says to that person, you are of no worth to me. I cannot even believe you are taking air right now. You, it would be better if you were dead. It is looking at someone like that and just dismissing them out of hand as if they have no intrinsic worth. You see, these religious leaders, they treated people who were created in the image of God like they were trash. And these were the people that were incredibly precious to God And these people were very fragile. So many times they were the lowest of the low. And yet these Pharisees felt justified in being angry at them and dismissing them. And the way we see that is because these guys would call these people fools. And in that language, in that time, calling someone a fool was again basically saying, I can't even believe you're living. Why are you even here? We'd all be better off if you were dead. Now, no, those are incredibly strong words, but these are the way they were being treated. And these scribes and Pharisees, while they didn't commit physical murder, their words demonstrated that in their hearts they disregarded people and dismissed them. And so Jesus says look, if you're going to treat people that way, there will be consequences. And he speaks of three consequences specifically about, that can happen out of dismissive, dismissive anger. The first one, he says, is you could be taken to court. There can be civil consequences. He said, hey, if your neighbor, if someone is taking you to court, you better make it right with them. And you're saying, well, how can that work in our time? Hey, have any of you ever heard of road rage? Right? where someone gets so mad at someone who pulls in front of them in the wrong way, and then they start chasing them down with their horns honking, pulling guns on them, all kinds of stuff. Where does that person end up before a court? And how many of them go, oh, I don't know what happened, your honor. I just, you know, my anger got the best of me. No, it's basically them saying, I disregard anybody else. It's all about me. So there can be civil consequences to your anger, Jesus says. But there can be worship consequences as well. And what do we mean by that? Jesus said, if you come to the altar and you have an offering that you want to give to the Lord, it can be an offering of praise. It can be a physical offering, money or whatever. And I come and I'm getting ready to offer this to the Lord. And I realize that there is someone out there who has something against me. And the reason they have something against you is because you've dismissed them. It's not like They did something to you. No, you've done something to them. You treated them like they were dirt. And you remember this as you get ready to offer your offering. Jesus said, you better go and leave your offering and go make it right. And then come back and offer your offering. Because what Jesus is basically saying is what John says in 1 John. How can you say you love God whom you haven't seen and yet hate your brother whom you have seen? It doesn't doesn't work that way, friends. You cannot say, oh, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, and treat people like trash the rest of the week. Before you worship, before you offer, before you serve, you go and you make it right with people. And let's face it, I mean, I know some people won't receive your forgiveness. And by the way, we're talking about a real apology. You know, not one of these, hey, if I've offended you, will you please forgive me? If you ever ask, if someone ever, that's another story. Never mind. Okay, listen. Listen. <laughs> Own your stuff. Own it. And you go and you say to somebody, I treated you horribly. I I was terrible, and I have no excuse other than I'm a sinner, but I have a Savior who has forgiven me, and I'm asking you, will you forgive me? You don't put anything on them. It was not their fault you treated them like trash. That's out of your heart. And you go to them and you ask to make it right. And again, I know you could go to some people and they'll say, I will never forgive you. Well, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, as much as it depends on you, you live at peace with everybody. And let's face it, there are gonna be some people we can't live at peace with. But if you are making true strides to be made right with people and they don't receive it, at some level that's on them. But you make sure that you are right with the Lord. So we go and make things right. So instead of looking down on people, we've gotta look at ourselves first. And what I think is that when Jesus says don't murder, that's kind of a warning shot across our bow. as saying, listen, your anger can lead to such a dismissive type of relationship with people that now you treat them like nothing. And so you better examine your own heart. Yeah, you say, oh, I've never committed physical murder, okay. Have you murdered someone in your own heart? And if I have what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, this is the opportunity to look inward. And if you do, if you do have murderous tendencies, if you have treated someone like that, then what does the Bible tell us we can do? We can confess our sins because he's faithful and he's righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we can go and if it's possible on our part, be reconciled with that person that we've looked down on. Next part. And so what I'm doing here, so there's six of, these, six, six of these antitheses. I'm combining two here as we look at adultery and divorce. So beginning in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Heavy stuff here. So what we find is Jesus is saying, listen, the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery, that's a physical act. But what Jesus is saying, there is more to sexual sin than just a physical act. He says it's really about your mind and about your imagination. What most people forget is that the greatest sexual organ human beings possess is the brain. It's whatever we begin to think about, that's what we end up doing. And so wherever we're filling our minds with, that's ultimately what will come out. And so if we have begun to lust for someone, and what that means is to imagine a sexual relationship, a sexual act with anyone other than your spouse, then according to Jesus, you have committed adultery in your heart. And so what we learn is that all sexual sin is ultimately offensive to God. And what do we mean by that? Well, again, God says in uh, the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. So we find out that lust isn't really just against your spouse, it's a sin against the very family structure that God has ordained. If you read the book of Genesis in the first two chapters, you'll find that God created man and woman and he brought them together and that was the first marriage. The first institution that God created was the home and a husband and wife. He brings Adam and Eve together, he blesses them, and he says, hey, you guys are now married. This is what it's supposed to be about. And that's what our lives are supposed to be. One man, one woman in covenant relationship until death alone parts us. And so even if we haven't gotten married yet and we are sinning sexually, then we are sinning against our future spouse should we get married. And so in essence, every type of sexual sin, and again, God has ordained that sex should happen between a man and a woman in a covenant marriage relationship alone. That's it. And if we go outside of that in any way, we break the seventh commandment, the essence of what that is. And I know some of us may be saying, well, what's the big deal? I mean, if I'm lusting in my mind, no one knows. I mean, my spouse doesn't know if I'm looking at some other man or some other woman, right? My spouse doesn't know it. The person I'm lusting after doesn't know. And so it's it's really no big deal. It's it's kind of just an innocent thing. It's just a, a thought that really doesn't hurt anyone. Friends, you've got to drive this home deep in your mind right now. Breaking any of God's commands is never innocent. It is never innocent. It's never just a little fun. It's never harmless. If you are breaking God's commands, we then make ourselves God. Because what we basically do when we willfully sin is we look at God and we say, hey, I know what your rules are, but screw your rules. I'm going to do things my way. And ultimately, isn't that us reversing the order that God is ordered us in. He is the creator and the ruler of our universe. He is the one that sets the world the way it's supposed to work. He is the one that sets how we're supposed to relate to one another. And if I choose to do things my way, I am breaking ultimately the first commandment, which says, have no other gods before me. I become a god unto myself and really question as Satan questioned God by saying, has God really said sex within a marriage is the only real sex that can happen? And when you begin to live that way, you're on a path to destruction. That's what Jesus says, that it's that kind of serious thing. And so do whatever it takes to remain pure. And friends, I know that's hard to do in this culture and in this society. But Jesus said, look, lust involves both your eyes and your hands. He said, look, if your right eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. If your right arm is causing you to sin, cut it off. And he says the right eye and the right hand because in that culture, that was valued more than the left. And what he says is, look, this is drastic. This is drastic. You need to do this. And I know it's hyperbolic. I know that. It's hyperbole. He's not really telling us to gouge out our eyes. He's not telling us to cut off our arm. But he's telling us to do whatever it takes to remain sexually pure. And what does that look like for us? Dear friends, if you have a trouble in, just trouble in this area, listen, get rid of Netflix. You don't have to know how Stranger Things ends, okay? <laughs> you, you don't, because better to not know how Stranger Things ends than for yourself to be gone, thrown into hell, right? Well, hey, how about Hulu? What about any Apple TV? What about streaming service? Listen, if you're Thing is to get on that and look at adult titles on there and look at stuff that we call soft porn. Friends, there is no such thing as soft porn. There is not anything like that. You are either faithful to your spouse or your future spouse, or you're sinning against them and God. You say, Mike, but that is so drastic. Better to never have streaming services than to allow your lust to cause you to be separated from God for eternity. What about um, vacations and stuff? (laughs) Hey, don't go to the beach or the pool if going there causes you to stumble. And you say, but that's where I go to vacation. Hey, go on an Alaskan cruise. They wear all their clothes on that. I mean, you do not have to go see the ocean. Better never to see the ocean or feel sand under your feet than for you to spend an eternity in hell because you were a man or a woman who was a sinner sexually. Hey, use things like Covenant Eyes on your phone or on your computer or on your iPads so that you have accountability for where you surf. Throw away your smartphone and get a flip phone, those things still work. And you're saying, Mike, man, this is, you're talking about radical stuff only because this world says it's radical. Because this world says, hey, look, it's only innocent fun. You're not hurting anyone. Hey, if the sexual sin is only just you. No, it's not. No, it's not. We've got to do whatever it takes to remain pure. Now, the reason I combined adultery with marriage is because often marriages, and what Jesus is going to say, marriages are affected by sexual sin. And the thing that we want to see first is that marriage is a living picture of God's love. In Ephesians 5, Paul says this, that marriage was created so that it could be a picture, a living illustration of the bride's love for the groom and the groom's love for the bride. Jesus is the groom and his bride is the church. And so when we look at a husband and wife who are faithfully married to one another until death they part, what we are seeing is what Jesus is to his church, to his bride. In fact, in the Old Testament, when Israel would go after other gods, God said that they played the role of an adulteress by chasing after other gods rather than God. And so what he's saying is we have to take purity in marriage very seriously. Why? Because God does. And friends, listen, I know in this room, there's not a single one of us that in some way or other hasn't been affected by divorce. I know that. You have been divorced, your parents, your your children, your grandkids even, your grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, sisters, friends, co-workers. We can't walk out, we cannot throw a stone in this place and not hit someone who's been affected by divorce. We know that. But just because divorce is common doesn't mean we have to accept it as such. God has given us a standard that we need to live up to. And so one of the things Jesus does is he narrows the reason for divorce. Divorce. You see, there were some in Jesus' time that said, hey, you can divorce your wife for anything, including if she cooked you a bad meal. I mean, how many of our marriages would have made it one year? Right? Yeah, I heard an amen. Lord, help you, okay? Um, uh, There'll be counseling available afterwards for that couple. Yeah, I mean, listen. Jesus said, no, look you, and you should understand this, that biblical divorce can only be for sexual immorality, a sexual sin. That is the only reason you can divorce. And so in other words, Jesus did not believe in the no-fault divorce. Now, this is a kicker for all of us to hear. Just because Jesus permits divorce doesn't mean he commands it. And I dare say there are many of us in this room who could give testimony, yeah, we had a reason to divorce, but God was gracious and he restored us. We know that that can happen. So Jesus doesn't, he permits it in sexual sense, he does not command it. And just real quickly, I want you to know that there's another permissible reason that the Bible gives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that if an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse then that is a permissible, but again, not commanded reason that you can divorce. So in other words, you're a believer, your unbelieving spouse says, look, I'm gonna go live my life, do my thing, I'm leaving you, and if he or she will not reconcile with you, then Paul says that that is a permissible reason to divorce, but again, even though abandonment can carry many forms, it does not mean that you have to be divorced. The goal is always reconciliation. But here's the question that many of us are probably asking, what if we didn't reconcile? And what if we didn't divorce for a biblical reason? Jesus said that if you divorce your wife and she remarries and you divorce her for any other reason than a sexual immoral issue, that you cause her to commit adultery and whoever marries her commits adultery as well. So what if we didn't reconcile? What if we divorced for the wrong reason? What if I'm now remarried? Am I still an adulterer? Well, here's the good news of the story of the Bible. It's not how you start that's important. It's how you finish. Your marriage may have begun for all the wrong reasons and in all the wrong ways. In fact, the reason the two of you may be married is because one or both of you were having an adulterous relationship, and then you got married. You divorced your other spouses. Then you got married, and you're saying, am I still an adulterer? I can tell you this by the word of God. No, you're not. God's grace and mercy is for all of us who have sinned. And here's what you need to take away. No matter how you started your marriage, from this day forward, honor your marriage now. Honor your marriage now. Honor the Lord in your marriage now. You be faithful to the one you're married to now. And you live for Jesus now. Truth. Everybody laughs at this picture. I think it's the coolest picture in the whole slide. That's Pinocchio, by the way. All right, truth. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. And then listen to this phrase. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So does your word mean anything? So in Jesus's day, if you made an oath that invoked the name of God, that carried more weight than if you named or made an oath swearing on something else lesser than God. So I make an oath and I say, I swear to God, boy, you better keep that because that's serious. But if I swore by heaven... Or if I swore by earth, or if I swore by Jerusalem, or I swore by, one head, by you know, my own head and my hair, hey, that's not as, as binding. In other words, it's almost like if I swear by that, it's almost like having my fingers crossed behind my back. I can wiggle out. Oh, oh I know I didn't keep my promise, but I, I didn't swear by God. I swore by Jerusalem. So they had an out. So, you know, like today, it would be like if I said, oh, I swear on my children's graves, that's way more important than, oh, you know, I, 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 trust me, I'm telling the truth, right? So Jesus said that even though you don't invoke God when you make an oath, but something lesser than him, you're still bound to whatever you swear to do, whatever your promise is, why? Because whatever you invoke belongs to God anyway, even your head, And so if you're swearing by Jerusalem, well, God made Jerusalem. If you're swearing by heaven, God made heaven. If you're swearing by the earth, God made the earth. If you're swearing by your own head, God made your head. It's all God's anyway, so you're swearing to God no matter what. And what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus called all of his followers to have such integrity that their word carried its own way. They didn't have to swear an oath. And then that phrase at the end, anything more than your yes being yes or your no being no is from the evil one. In John 8, Jesus said that when the devil tells a lie, he speaks his own nature, speaks from his own nature. Why? Because he is a liar and the father of lies. And here in Matthew, Jesus says that if you have to invoke something to be believed, then you take on the devil's character. That's pretty strong, isn't it, from the Lord? But That's what he's saying. Why? Because the devil was a liar from the beginning, and if we are people who lie, in other words, our words cannot be trusted, then we take on his character, the devil's character, then we do God's. And Again, why is that so important? Because it is hard to tell others of God's truth when we're untrustworthy. You go and say to someone, hey, I want you to know Jesus loves you. Well, how do I know you're telling the truth now? because you've been lying to me all so much. You've never kept your word. How do I know you're keeping your word now? In other words, believers, followers of Jesus Christ, their yeses should be yes and their no should be no. We should never have to swear that we're telling the truth because that's all we do is tell the truth. And why is that? Because it reflects our Heavenly Father. Last part, and again, I'm combining two parts together uh, as we finish up. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your enemy, or love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your father, your heavenly father is perfect. So in Jesus' day, and in the Old Testament, God knew that man had a tendency to revenge and that we would take revenge farther than the crime. In other words, our revenge would go farther than what the crime was against us. So God instituted a law of retaliation called the lex talionis, which basically is the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So the punishment should always fit the crime, all right? So if I get my tooth knocked out, I'm not going to cut someone's arm off the punishment would not fit the crime. So God was trying to protect us from ourselves and our tendency to go beyond the idea of revenge to really true punishment. And so this was though a law not for individuals, it was a law for the courts to follow so that the courts would be fair in how they passed out judgment. And I know, again, our government is not always perfect, especially in this area, but at that point, the primary restrainer of evil in our culture is the courts and the law, not individuals. In other words, God never allows you to take the law into your own hands. So what do we do when we've been affected by someone's evil? Well, the Bible tells us to treat people with kindness. To instead of escalate situations, we de-escalate situations. And Jesus gives us a couple examples. He says if someone slaps you, He doesn't say, now you pull out your fist and hit them. He says, you turn the other cheek. You de-escalate the situation. If someone sues you for your shirt, you don't fight them. You say, hey, you can have my coat too. If someone says, hey, walk a mile with me, carry my luggage for a mile, you say, "I'll I'll go too. And you say, all that does is make us doormats. I will never allow that to happen because of that way. Well, look. Instead of your first instincts being hatred and violence, our first instincts under Christ should be love and kindness. And you say, I could never be like that. If someone treats me bad, I'm coming after them. Yeah, like Jesus did? Is that that what I'm hearing? You wanna be like Jesus? Because if I remember right, in the scriptures it says when Jesus was beaten, he didn't say a word. When his beard was being pulled out, He didn't say a word. He did not rain down. In fact, he said, I could call legions of angels, but instead, I am doing this because I love you. On the cross, what did Jesus cry out? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He did not escalate. He de-escalated and showed kindness and love, and that's what we are called to do. And in this year of craziness, this 2020 election cycle, where things are going crazy, Christians are to follow Jesus' model, not the world's madness. We reflect our king, not the king of this earth, right? We live according to what Jesus wants us to do. And what about our enemies? Hey, let's all face it, it's easy to love the ones (laughs) we agree with, amen? It's really easy to love the ones that agree with us, right? But what about our enemies? Well, Jesus calls us to love them too, Nor are we supposed to love the people who come against us? We are supposed to love our enemies. Why? Because he says, then you will be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. Because the Father loved us. What happens is we have a tendency to kind of segregate ourselves off in tribes, don't we? We kind of pull ourselves off together and we want to hang out politically or socioeconomically or racially, ethnically with the people who are like us. We like to segregate ourselves. And that's the beautiful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and about the church. There's probably in this room, there's a lot of us that have absolutely nothing in common except we have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And because of that, the Bible says now there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now there is no slave or free. Now there is no male or female. We are one in Jesus Christ. The cure to racism, the cure to political issues, the cure to all of that is not fighting and yelling and screaming and trying to win someone over to your point, the cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ that says we are all sinners who need a savior. We fight that as much as we can. And let's face it, no one was like Jesus. Not you, not me, not anyone. And if anyone had a reason to hate his enemies, what is it, Jesus? I mean, Jesus never had a bad day. He never treated anyone wrongly. He never put anybody down. He was always right he never said the wrong thing never acted wrongly and yet Jesus was still beaten bloodied and crucified and yet he still prays that the father will forgive that's our model we model it after Jesus and we follow the father's example Jesus says look the father lets it the sun shine I mean this is going to be a beautiful day today praise the Lord right get ready for some more rain Amen. All right. You know, if you don't like the weather in, in Nashville, you know, just wait a day. It'll change. All right. So we, we, we know that the sunshine today, and I'm, I'm telling you this, the worst person in Murfreesboro will get to walk out in the sunshine and enjoy it. And that's a blessing from God on that person. And you know what the hope of the Father is? That the, this person will finally go, you know, God's way better to me than I deserve. Maybe I need to think about this God more than I do. Jesus said, hey, the father lets it rain even on the unrighteous. Well, if God is showing kindness to those kinds of people, we should be showing that kindness as well. God loves us not because we can do anything for him, but because it's his character to love sinners. He loves us because he is love. And the reason we love others is not so we can get something back from them, but we are to give love to them as we've received it. And we've received his love freely. We didn't earn it or deserve it. And so as we kind of come to the end, I want to focus on that last verse, verse 48. Be perfect like your father in heaven, like your heavenly father is perfect. And so we are to pursue perfection and we are to hit it perfectly. So if we get all these commands right, then here's the good news. We'll be perfect like our father in heaven is perfect. So you're saying, okay, how do I do that? Jesus laid it out for us. All we have to do is treat people as humans created in God's image. We need to see people as more than sexual objects. We need to be faithful in marriage. We need to be truthful every day. We need to be kind, and we need to love our enemies perfectly every moment of every day. And then you'll be perfect like God. You in, right? Or yeah, despair, (laughs) gloom, because we all know we fall short. And here's the thing, we may never have committed the actual acts of murder and adultery, physically. But as we've just learned, there's not a single one of us in this room who can say we fully kept the heart of everything that Jesus has called us to do. And if you can say that, can I just say you're blinded? Because we've all fallen short. In fact, the Bible says that the condition of our hearts is reflected in our relationships as we started off. And as Jesus has just shown, we all fall short in some way, don't we? In some way. And I want to address two groups of people in this room. First, I want to address those of you who may have been a victim. Some of us have been treated horribly by people. We've been treated with dismissive anger. We've been told that our lives aren't even worth living We've been sexually abused. We've been beaten. We've been emotionally abused. We've been lied to. People have treated us terribly. They've retaliated against us. They have hurt us mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And maybe even by those who call themselves Christians. But I want you to know that we have a Father who sees Himself in us, He created you in His image. We have a father who will always be faithful to you. He will never leave you or forsake you. We have a father who will not cast you out when he gets tired of you like your old newspaper. He will always tell the truth even when you don't want to hear it. He will always be kind to you and he will love you even when you don't love him. That's the kind of father we have. And so if you've been a victim, don't live in your victimhood. You live in who Jesus says you are but what if we've been the one who's acted horribly? What if we've hurt people? Some of us have committed these sins against each other, not just in our minds, but in physical acts. We've treated people according to our anger. We've been unfaithful to our spouse. We've divorced our spouse. We've lied. We've retaliated. We've hated. We've neither kept the letter nor the heart of the commandments. What about us? Is there hope for us? And dear friends, I just want you to know that question for me is not a rhetorical question. Three and a half years ago, I confessed to marital unfaithfulness to my wife. Yes, the one that I'm about to be married to for 37 years. I confess that. I was a man that was addicted to porn and to lust. And the question for me was, is there a God they can forgive a guy like me, and this is what God's word says. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And you're going, Mike. I thought there was hope. <laughs> well, look at verse 11. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Yes, there is hope. So if you've been the victim, you are not damaged goods. Please, if you... If you don't remember anything, walk out here knowing God loves you. And he sees you as a beloved son and daughter. He does not see you as damaged good. He died for you. He loves you that much. You are special to him. But what if you're like me? You've been the perpetrator. You've done horrible things. Know that you are redeemable because Jesus died for sinners. Amen and amen. Amen. He died so that he can bring us home and he can give us a new name. And which is beyond belief, he gives me his name. I am his son. There is hope. And let's face it, probably for most of us, we've been a little of both of these, haven't we? We've been on the receiving end and we've dished it out. And there's hope for us. And so, how do you get this new heart? How do you really get into this? Anyone who will repent of your sins and by faith will trust in what Jesus has done for you. The Bible says you will be born again and you will receive a new heart. And today can be that day for us. Today can be the day that you can be set free to be what God created you to be. He called you and wants you to be his son and his daughter and you can have that today. Let's pray together. And so in this room, I don't know where you are. Maybe you've been the victim. Maybe you've been the perpetrator. Maybe you've been both. Maybe you've come into this place warning, is there a God that really can love a man, a woman like me? Does God, can, if I, God really knew who I am and what I've done, what's happened to me, would God really love me? I'm just damaged goods, and I've been told I am worth Nothing. All you have to do, friends, is look to the cross of Jesus Christ and you will see that you are immeasurably worth of worth to God. He gave his son to die on the cross for you. Maybe you're here and you're saying, hey, is this Christianity really for me? Pastor Isaac is here on my right and your left and Pastor Isaac loves to tell people of the goodness of God and salvation. If you say... Pastor, I, I, can God save a person like me? He will give you the truth. Yes, you can be saved. Maybe you have a question about this God that, you, that I've been talking about. Come talk to Isaac. Maybe you just need some prayer with some people. And we have men and women on both sides of our stage that you can come up and if you've been carrying a burden for so long, you can let it go. You can give it up in prayer. So come and Ask one of these to pray with you. And then all around this room, we have communion. Everywhere where you see a lamp on a table. That's the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of God's love for us because it tells us that Jesus went to the extreme, even unto death, that you might be redeemed, that you might be saved, that you might be born again, that you might be called a son or a daughter. And so when you eat of that bread and when you drink of that juice, what you're reminding yourself in is that I can never work my way to God. God worked his way to me. Jesus came to save sinners like me. And so really that communion is rejoicing. It's worship. As you worship the one who died for you. I just know this, friends. There's not a one of you in this room that has to leave this place with chains on them. Not one of you have to. You can lay your burdens down even now. Lay them at the feet of the cross and you can walk out of this place a new man, a new woman. God has sent his son. Will you trust in him? And so our Father, we now give you this. We are grateful that though we have done horrible things and we've had horrible things done to us, Our identity is not in what has happened or what we've done. Our identity is in Jesus. And so I pray across this room, even now, that change would fall off, that people's hearts would be awakened to the truth that God came to save sinners, that there are no such things in God's kingdom as damaged goods, that the reason you expose our sin is not to condemn us. You expose our sin so we'll run to where we can find forgiveness, and it's in Christ alone. And so, Father, would you move in this place for your glory? Speak to every heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys, and you can help yourselves.